All right, so we have reached the seventh and final season of Star Trek Voyager, and I honestly could not be happier. Uh, I'm ready. I have very conflicted... Yeah, I'm ready to. <laughs> I have very conflicted feelings about Star Trek Voyager. I think that as we transition slowly into the warm bath of the seventh season of Star Trek Voyager, I think that we will start to talk more and more about the series as a whole. I'll be very curious to see what our conversation is like with the series finale in um, 26 weeks, uh, because we are now releasing biweekly, so it's not, it's a little bit more extended. Um, But I don't know. I I think Unimatrix Zero Part 2 is kind of a an er example of what is good and bad about Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I can definitely see that there are some there is some great character stuff. This is another great uh I I, I mean I absolutely loved the Janeway and the Borg Queen scenes even though you know there are problems with the Borg Queen uh I always like the two actresses trying to out bluff each other and that's always great. Uh and I mean, well, I mean, I will just say flat out that that one of the best things about Star Trek Voyager is how many strong female characters it has. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't have a ton. I mean, it's it's still a, a network television show in America, the 1990s slash 2000s. But, you know, we have Janeway, we have Seven of Nine, we have the Borg Queen, and we also have Cass. I would I would slot Cass into that. So oh, we have even had Seska, who was a very, I thought, was a very good villain in her in her seasons. I mean, they they have had a good run of female antagonists and protagonists and guest stars, which is, I think, something that Star Trek in general has tried to make a point to do, even if in, for example, lots of parts of Next Generation it didn't quite succeed. Yeah, for sure. But I think that, I mean, I find it interesting that that you liked the Janeway and Borg Queen scenes because I I like them if I look at them objectively, but I think, like, devoid of any context, I should say. They're, they're really good scenes, but I do think that we have to talk about the Borg Queen again because I kind of elided that last week where I was kind of like, eh, eh yeah. the Borg Queen. If you want to know our thoughts on the Borg Queen, go back and listen to our Star Trek First Contact podcast, but... This episode has so much to do with the Borg Queen and so much to do with how the Borg are actually governed or structured or, or, or something like that. Their society and culture operates. And I, I fundamentally have problems with the concept of the Borg Queen still. I think that she was introduced in Star Trek First Contact because pretty much every single Star Trek movie after Wrath of Khan was in some way, shape, or form structured like Wrath of Khan, thinking that they needed to have an antagonist, you know, a single antagonist as a character. And that's kind of how the Borg Queen was introduced. But And and which is, sorry, how Unimatrix Zero is structured as well, as well as Dark Frontier. I mean, they are... Yes. There are definite, you know, the, the hero captain and the antagonist kind of sparring off against each other and physical cont- uh, combat is not going to do it. They have to outwit each other. Yeah, that, that uh, it does feel very, very Wrath of Khan. Maybe I just like that, but continue. Well, it, I mean, what, what it comes down to for me is that it really strips away everything that had made the Borg unique. Yeah. That they were just this nameless, faceless enemy that was just relentlessly coming at you. And... I mean, the Borg Queen is fine. I think that that the actress who plays her, although I, 
I think actually, yes, this is the one that played her in the movie, I believe. No, I think they, this is this is the one who played her in Dark Frontier, I think. Susan okay. something or other. Um I always get confused. I can never remember with which all the is makeup. Which, honestly. <laughs> but I just I just feel like it takes away everything that makes the Borg unique. And I am not a huge Borg fan or anything. I'm not like a Borg aficionado, but the Borg is portrayed in TNG and the Borg is portrayed in Voyager are just very different entities. And yeah, I think it does. It does just make them less interesting to have it suddenly be a clash of personalities between two people, as opposed to this nameless faceless thing that you can never really get away from. Now you can argue, of course, that they couldn't really have continued to do that because it is not realistic to have an enemy as strong as the Borg and continue to get away from them because it would take away the impact. And so you have to find different ways to color outside the lines with telling Borg stories. But I I don't know. It's, it just feels very like whatever to me. Well, one, one of the things that I was saying last week is that it almost seems that the, the, the Borg queen is the Borg developing individuality and it really do- does make me wish that they had been doing that deliberately that, again, just you have this collective. It's going for a long enough time. It's encountering and, and assimilating enough individualistic species that the-, the light of individuality is going to be so strong that even the Borg is going to want to develop that. And if they had, again, been deliberately doing that, I think that would be an interesting take on the Borg. Um, I mean, I think very – one of the – Key scenes for me in this episode is the one where she uh, goes into Uni- – the queen goes into Unimatrix Zero and she's talking to the little boy and she's saying, oh, well, assimilation's nothing to be scared of. I was your age when I was assimilated and I'm with my parents and all of that. And I Which can- incidentally, I had a huge problem with that scene, but continue. Yeah, because the huge problem with the scene is that – Again, in first contact, it's almost implied that the Borg Queen is something that's kind of ad hoc assembled because for their purposes they need a figurehead. Uh, and this this is something – to say that she was an actual person who was assimilated and decided that she was going to be the queen, however that happened, uh, is ridiculous, which makes me then look at the scene and wonder – is the Borg Queen just lying to this boy to lull him into a false sense of security? And I the think that yes. I think that and that's actually a much more interesting wrinkle on that because the Borg do not do deception. The Borg do not lie. We have no need to lie. And here we have a Borg lying. Again, if you have a deliberate the Borg are developing individualistic traits, that's a very fascinating wrinkle on this. But as it were, I can't tell what the point of the scene is supposed to be. I've, I I don't know if the, who who wrote this episode. What I I didn't catch the credit. It was it was Brian and Braga, okay. and I'm not sure who else. But essentially finishing up their own script, and that feels then that feels like a very lazy line that I'm not able to come up with a understanding of it. Again, if it's if it's a deliberate adding some wrinkles into the Borg, I can get behind that. But I guess I. I guess finally you've been saying all this time, you know, don't look too much into Voyager, don't expect too much from Voyager. I finally stopped expecting much from Voyager, and now that exchange is just kind of crappy. 
I agree with you. I mean, I think that that scene introduces a whole host of problems and the Borg Queen had already introduced a whole host of problems, but they're really doubling down on it. And yeah. let's, you know, if you take that that scene at face value and you say, okay, the, the Borg Queen was just someone who was assimilated and I, I don't know, the Borg pick a queen for whatever reason. Yeah. Who, who really knows? It's a lottery. It doesn't it's matter. A lo- yeah, they just pick someone at random. It doesn't really matter who it is, although it's always a woman because of reasons. I, I don't know. Because uh, the whole I mean, Borg, there could be a Borg in and of itself king, is very but... strange. Uh, that let's, let's, uh, do, please, let, don't give anyone any ideas. Um, but I think that, uh, because if the Borg, queen was just a random individual who yeah. was assimilated and then became the Borg queen but also has individuality what does that actually yeah. mean does that mean that she had an individual personality when she what before she was assimilated then she was just a drone flying around the galaxy in some sort of tactical cube or whatever and then the Borg, you know, she won the lottery and suddenly they gave her individuality again. I'm not, but, but she's like a completely different personality. She's an individual Borg. I don't, yeah. I don't understand this. And what's worse, I don't think that the writers understand this either. I yeah. think that they are forgetting that she is supposed to be a part of this collective. I mean, the idea behind the Borg was always that hearing everyone else's thoughts in your head at all times would mean that your personality would be subsumed by some sort of collective. And that's an interesting idea. Is that true? Is that not true? I don't know. But having the Borg Queen act as an individual to such a degree that, for example, right, like uh, uh, Tuvok, Janeway, and Balana let themselves be assimilated in this episode because they need to get to the... um, the, the, the central plexus, plexus the central plexus in order to act in order to send their their virus throughout the the collective okay fine that's that's fine setup for yeah. an episode and they take this neural suppressant to keep their individuality intact so that they are not uh, uh subsumed entirely by the board yet okay fine i'm with you but then tuvok starts to have his neural suppressant break down that's also interesting raises the stakes of the episode what's going to happen but the Borg Queen still keeps calling him Tuvok. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe there uh, – I, I could sort of explain that as, well, Tuvok is kind of straddling the line and he is, he's still Vulcan enough to not respond to 13 of 54, but you know, Tuvok is how he's going to. But yeah, it, it doesn't it, – it, it, it's the kind of thing that – when you're thinking again, when you're thinking about it after the episode is off, it's yeah, that doesn't really make sense. And and let me also add that why is the Borg Queen needing to have spies and stuff when they're going to the central plexus, which you would think anyway would be pretty heavily guarded, and it's a pretty obvious location. Like, why didn't they just check the major plexuses? But that's a different story. Yeah, um, why don't they have like why don't they have some Borg? drone standing guard yeah the warp core always has people around it because that's one of the most important areas of the ship and if anybody gets into the warp core area they could cause a lot of damage you would think the same with the central plexus well and i and this is i think this gets to to a central question that i always have or always come to about star trek voyager is that was tng and ds9 always this sloppy we just didn't notice because the stories were better or is voyager like just not as careful as those shows. Well, I will admit that I 
obviously when it comes to a show that you like, you'll be more charitable to it. I mean, there, I'm sure there are plenty of Deep Space Nine and TNG episodes, more so in TNG maybe, uh, where things didn't quite add up. I mean, it's it's a science fiction show that is partially based around techno babble, right? Like things are not things are they're going to half ass some stuff and oh this just works because the science is so advanced that it works. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to make sense in order to get the characters from point A to point B. And I think when points A and B are interesting and the characters are interesting, if the if the if the connective tissue isn't the greatest, it's okay. I'm willing to forgive that. Um I guess with episodes of Voyager, I don't love the characters. Points A and point B aren't as interesting and well thought out, and so uh, the bumpiness of the ride becomes even more obvious. There's nothing to distract me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good way to put it because I just think of so many little pieces of, of this episode that that in isolation wouldn't really yeah. matter that much, but but when you start to pick away at it and take the threads, it starts to fall apart. I mean, for example... Um, they make a point of of giving Bellana a subvocal processor. Why? <laughs> what is the reason for that? There's no reason for it. They just wanted Bellana to sound weird, I guess. Yeah, um, just a, a a little. Oh, we had this audio effect, and it gives us a couple lines, and it gives it gives Bellana something interesting to do in this episode. Well, I think that that is is well, yeah, I guess it, that's a charitable interpretation of the the word interesting. But I, I think that it, it you know, I, I think of like a, a, that scene in Imperfection where they they randomly get attacked by some aliens and they just go yeah. away, and you're like, what what was the point of that? I just think that there are so many moments in these two episodes of Voyager and in Voyager in general, frankly, that feel like padding. They yeah, feel like they don't really have much of a story or a script here, and they don't know what to do because. In TNG or DS9, these moments that they needed something for the script to do would be filled with character stuff, and they don't yeah. have it. And so they just put these random things in there that just don't make any sense. I think that, you know, if you take out the Balana has a subvocal processor thing and you take out that weird exchange between the Borg Queen and the little boy who was being who was about to be assimilated, you would have a much better episode because like I think to the scene between Chakotay and Tom Paris in Janeway's ready room as an example of a scene yeah. that is really well done, but has almost no connection to the relationship that those two characters have because those two characters don't really have a relationship. Well, and- I, I mean, I would say that that scene probably does come from the fact that Paris and Chakotay don't really have a relationship. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm actually interested to jump into that scene because I have a lot more to say on the subject with imperfection actually. Um but I really liked that scene because it's a weird mirror of all of the scenes that we've had between Chicote and Janeway, uh which have o- always been very passionate and very like while obviously Chicote and Janeway are not equals in rank and their conversations have that inequality in rank baked into them, uh, they are a lot closer than Paris and Chicote, both on a professional and an emotional level. And I think it's funny that Paris is just pretty much, you know, shut down on it. And, you know, Chicote basically says, no, we're doing this. Like, I know you're worried, but you know, he doesn't really need to attempt to convince Paris of this. He doesn't need to uh, 
appeal to – he doesn't need to have Paris on board because he has to be on board in a way. And I I think it's an interesting wrinkle on you know, Janeway's stubbornness that we've seen that we have uh, Chakotay having a bit of captainly stubbornness on this too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I mean, I like the scene a lot, and yeah. I think it, it it's interesting, and I think it's one of the stronger parts of, of the episode for sure. I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I think that, that maybe even acknowledging that or leaning into that a little bit more would have been an interesting decision for the episode because you're right, like Chakotay has always had that what, what what Paris does in this episode is what Chakotay always does. Chakotay always comes yeah. to Janeway in private and says, you know, what what the what the F are you doing? Like this is not what we should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And Janeway ninety five percent of the time doesn't listen to Chakotay. I mean, I think that there was that one episode last season, I believe, um I can't remember the specifics of it because Voyager episodes all tend to bleed together. Um where where she actually does listen to Chakotay and he's shocked and actually changes her mind. So I yeah, think wasn't they, that part one of this though? Uh, uh maybe it was. <laughs> it might yeah, have no, been. They 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 did have in part one. Janeway and Chakotay do have a heart to heart about it. Uh, about whether to go on this mission, and I think I mean I think, and maybe they're bleeding into me as well. It's the one where she says. You know, he basically says okay, and she says, "Oh, thank God, I was about to talk myself out of this." Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that's right. Like Chakotay acknowledging for a moment, perhaps that he is—I don't know—I'm not I, like a wry chuckle to himself or something, realizing that that you know the role of of yeah. command and having the 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 fate of 150 people on your shoulders is going to change the way that you act. And well, you know, you know realizing sort of the absurdity of the situation would have been interesting. I just think that the episode doesn't, or the the scene doesn't go far enough for me. I. I Especially because we had all of what you just said in Best of Both Worlds Part 2. That's Riker's plot in that episode is the big scene with Guinan uh, where he's mm-hmm. dealing with the fact that he's somebody who didn't want command and now has command and, you know, his friend and captain is captured and he's now – his you know, he all of his complex feelings, which that episode went very well into. Uh, and again, a lot of that has to do with Riker being just – so much of a better developed character in season three than Chicote is in season seven. I don't know how Chicote feels about the command, the, the burdens of command. Maybe he, I, I'm sure he believes that he's. It's a lot more temporary than Riker believes it to be in Best of Both Worlds. Certainly, Picard seems a lot more lost than Janeway does. Uh, but still, I don't know how he's reacting to this. Well, and also let's not forget, because I, I, I think the show forgot that Chakotay was in command of people before when he was in the Maquis. You know, he, <laughs> like, and maybe so, that's so, why he has a bit more aplomb about it. It's true. Yes, I, I think that you can certainly make a case that that, that is shading the way that he's acting in this episode. But this, I mean, these all sort of feel like, uh, I don't know, like ad hoc. Like questions that should have things. been asked when the script was being written frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that fundamentally just comes down to the idea that, that the, the writing staff just frankly don't know who these people are. And and it's the seventh season and we're just not going to figure that out. Well, well, let's talk about maybe the one character of, of maybe the two or three characters on the show that they do know, Seven of Nine, because... I don't yeah. think Seven of Nine has a super interesting arc in this episode. I think Imperfection's a much better arc for her. Yeah. But... 
I mean, it's fine. I like her getting a little action and she gets a little bit more in tune with her emotions and a little bit more in tune with her humanity. And the doctor, um, is really unhappy about that. And they seem to really be leaning in on that idea now, which I'm not sure if I'm happy about, but (laughs) yeah. Uh, I mean, part of that conversation did remind me a little bit of Bashir and Dax and which frankly, even, stretches to the characters' roles on both show. Uh, Seven of Nine and Dax do kind of have a similar job. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, and, and I guess this felt like a once more with less feeling. I mean, maybe that's the, that's how I'm feeling about Voyager in general, I guess, right now. It, 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 it's so late and everybody's so tired that they've stopped trying to do anything that new and they're not putting that much effort into it. I, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean that's unfair to say. This is trying to be a big episode. They are trying to figure out types of stories to tell. But this is not an A team anymore. Well, right. It's it's not, and it's weird to say that, but I, I think that's really true. And that what I think is really what it comes down to. Like Seven of Nine has her big romantic moment. She has not had any romantic relationships that we know of before. And so when she seven of nine doesn't know her own emotions, right? And I think imperfection makes that also clear. And she's very closed off emotionally. She, she's not really comfortable with, with displaying her emotions and that's all fair. I mean, I'm not saying that that's wrong for her to be that way or anything, Not at all. Uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily good for her. And so when Axum kind of tells her or or it's revealed that before they did have an intimate relationship when she was still in the collective and going to Unimatrix Zero when she was regenerating, that she is is kind of she's taken aback by that or it's a little off putting to her. And slowly she comes around to the idea yeah. again, which is sort of trying to indicate that she is recapturing some of her lost humanity like that's all fine but it's all very surfacey i i don't i don't think there's really anything there that is subtextual in any way well yeah and i guess a lot of it is that the two of them don't really have a ton of chemistry <laughs> i mean that's I, true too you know i could definitely i mean i i really like the concept of that situation you know over years she and axum frankly have spent years together and developed a relationship and you know i wonder if there's almost a set there is a and i feel like by implication that annika and unimatrix zero pre her deborging um was a very different person than she is now. I mean, and that makes complete sense if all she remember from her memory, she was Borg, she became human again, she's dealing with all sorts of weird trauma. If she hasn't really had the, you know, if having to develop her emotional life is a part of humanity that is necessary, which I do agree, it's also, the show is also understanding that she's going to get to that in her own time and she's been making amazing progress. It's really only been four years and there's been no therapist around. So, you know, that's, that's fantastic. And 
you know, I love the idea of this from Maxon's perspective is that you know, he lost the woman he loved and now she's back and she's very different. She doesn't even remember him and that's pretty rough on him and this is just a fucked up situation even not dealing with the fact that they were that they are essentially resistance fighters and again, I would be, I would buy believe and be more interested in this if 7 of 9 and Axum in present day had more of a connection, but they seem to be the kind of people who, well, we were together in college and now we've met up, so we might as well get married, even though we don't really know what we've done for the past 15 years. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And I think also, just to add on to that, I think part of the problem with it is that Axum doesn't really have much of a personality. I mean, yeah. he's, he's he's pretty much the generic sort of handsome guy that yeah. is nice to you and that that's pretty much all it is I, I don't know why seven of nine would be really drawn to him in any way shape or form yeah it, it it's it would be nice if that character maybe worse like maybe if he was less of a stereotyped uh sci-fi romantic you know secondary i mean maybe if he was somebody who was babbling about perfection and talking in very stilted terms and very interested in science and math and kind of stuff like if he was as much of a geek as she was i think i could buy that yeah yeah true like i need them to bond over numbers (laughs) that's how all my relationships start bonding over math um well, well, let's. Uh, I think that's all we can say about that. I, I think the last thing, the last big plot point to deal with before we move on to imperfection is Unimatrix Zero itself. So, I credit where credit is due. I think that the resolution of this plot is very well done. I think that Janeway's secret message to them is very well done. Yeah, I think that the the idea of Unimatrix Zero as a vehicle for the Borg queen attempting to undo their virus and them destroying Unimatrix zero in order to keep the individuality of the Borg cubes. And also, I guess, stop them from being tracked by the Borg queen. And thus now we have like liberated Borgs at Borgs out there is kind of interesting. And also, I mean, just a Borg Klingon with a, yeah, <laughs> with a tactical cube is just kind of badass. So all of that works for me. Well, I guess my question, because it's Ken Beller now and it's season seven and they know this is the last season and in a way all bets are off, right? Like I have no idea if the Borg resistance is going to be a major thing of this season. As far as I <laughs> it, it very easily could be. It could also be that this is the last time we hear about the Borg resistance, right? Like, this is Ken Spiller's time. I don't know what he wants to do. And I, I, I th- I, I, I'm worried I'm going to be very disappointed. And maybe this is, again, maybe I'm finally, my, the fish scales have fallen and I am just disgusted but i don't trust it to do right by this story and this was this is going to be another q civil war which what happened to that wasn't that a big thing isn't q flopping around here somewhere i mean well i'm not saying anything but there is an episode this season called q2 um oh no i i think your dogged insistence that star trek voyager is going to have some sort of follow-through is is amazing it's stupid hope it is dumb optimism it is just a childish wish but 
I think it says that you have really internalized the, the lessons and morals of Star Trek. Well, good for me. All right. Well, well, let's move on to imperfection. But I do want to say one last thing about Unimatrix Zero Part 2, which is that um, was Neelix the best choice to have serving on the bridge during a battle? You know... Was Neelix that struck the, me as odd. Was Neelix the best choice is a pretty uh, <laughs> good question. It's just very strange to me because I don't think we've ever seen him in that position before. And then all of a the sudden, there's Neelix doing stuff on the bridge <laughs> during a battle. I okay, mean, who, it, sure. Who else is left by this point? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's move on to imperfection. But before we do that... I just want to take an opportunity to remind you that this podcast is supported by you. Yes, you, the listener listening to this right now. If you would like to give us a little bit of your heart, earn money each and every month, and support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash and give now. All right, imperfection. Cards on the table. This is the episode that I was excited to talk about. I, I really like it. I I think it was a very good episode, too. It was a... I mean, again, there is a lot of that weird padding. There's the part where they, as you mentioned, they're on the ship and suddenly there's smugglers that we never see again. And that was just a couple minutes of television and fine. And Janeway gets to be a badass and there's a fight. Uh, Also, the scene where they're showing the simulation and the simulation goes wrong and Seven of Nine dies. I mean, these are things that in an episode with more meat to it – and this is not a meatless episode, but in an episode with more meat to it, it would have been cut just and handled in a line of dialogue. Um, and I feel like this is going with it would be nice to have more character scenes. And the way – I'm going back to DS9, and DS9 certainly had its main plots, but there were a lot of check-ins with other characters, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, O'Brien and Bashir are going to have a scene. Keiko is away for uh, – this episode so o'brien is gonna have a scene with bashir about how much he misses them and he's gonna grudgingly admit his friendship together and they're gonna get drunk and that's a cute scene which advances their relationship uh because obviously all of the brian o'brien bashir scenes went somewhere eventually um or we're gonna see what dax is doing this week and dax and quark are gonna spar with each other and she's gonna make a wry comment about dabo and something like that and I loved those scenes because – and they were good because DS9 had a good sense of its characters and where its characters were evolving. And that's something that as we keep going and saying, Voyager does not have. It doesn't really have them. We don't – I have no idea what Harry Kim is doing during the events of this episode. Nobody does. And I don't know. I wish the show did more B-plots I guess. He's he's masturbating silently while while weeping to himself. I I think that um I mean I think all of that is is certainly fair and I think that imperfection is is definitely not a perfect episode of television or anywhere close to that. But yeah. as a a character vehicle for 7 of 9 and as a further exploration of her, her own humanity, I I quite like it and I also think that credit where credit is due 
they are trying to establish Icheb as a secondary yeah. character. And I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. You know, let's not forget that this episode starts out with three of the four remaining board children uh, being shunted off to some sort of, you know, home for wayward children or something. Yeah. I don't really know what's happening there, uh, which is whatever. I don't really care. I mean, I think that they probably could have gone as far as they could have gone yeah. with those characters. And Icheb is still on the show. He's not leaving. He's, in fact, going going to be applying to Starfleet Academy. Oh god, he's Wesley. Yep. Um he wants a bridge shift. Oh god, he's Wesley. Uh but I think that you know, he's there. They're establishing his character. They're doing a good job of it. They haven't forgotten that he exists. I think I know more about Icheb and his hopes and wants and desires out of life than I do about Harry Kim yeah. certainly. <laughs> and what's more, I think that you know, it's it's simultaneously really well done and really frustrating because there are so many parts of this episode, as you already said, the, the weird smuggler thing, the the weird thing where they fake you out by thinking that they're trying to replace our cortical node and it's a simulation. Like, yes, there's padding and stuff and you think that what what are they doing? I don't know what they're really doing. I think that they don't have enough character stuff to fill the episode. But then you get stuff like Seven of Nine confronting Janeway about yeah. her fears of dying by, by confronting Janeway with her failures as a captain. Well, I shouldn't say failures, but, but people have died under her command. Uh, you get a really, really, really good scene with yeah. Bellana and Seven of Nine where they oh, talk about death and dying. Yeah. You know, so I think that that that's really that like imperfection is a lot like Unimatrix Zero Part Two, which is that it highlights a lot of what is so good and bad about Voyager at the same time. Yeah, and I, which is why I think my default mode of with Voyager seems to be frustration because there's so much good here, and it's not like they don't you know they don't have an excuse for it not to be good so because they've done it so well so many times but again just everybody's tired everybody's moving on to other projects everybody you know everybody hates each other and <laughs> it's again it 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 has the core of an excellent show that's just mired by some unfortunate real life stuff yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think we'll have to see what happens with the seventh season. I mean, I I don't really have, like, the fondest memories of it, but I also don't think it's, like, terrible or anything. Um, but, but grounding this conversation in imperfection specifically, um, I think the one thing that I want to dispense with really early on is, once again, Voyager's complete lack of attention to detail because... You know, that that scene between Seven of Nine and Janeway where she confronts Janeway in Astrometrics is really, really well done. It's really powerful and it encapsulates a lot of yeah. their relationship so far. Um, but at the same time, the list of crew members that she shows that have died <laughs> include Lin- Lindsay Ballard, who was from Ashes to Ashes. And uh, the episode makes me so angry. I don't want to start talking about it. I'm just become a crazy person again. And like a bunch of in-jokes, apparently. Oh, I don't think Suter was on the list. Um, I don't think that who else died. There were other people that died. I just, it's like, it's so weird to me that they just double down on this ensign L- L- Lindsay Ballard bullshit. But anyway. Yeah, no, that, that, that could be a, a version which very much cared about every single character death, which went through the scripts and, and looked at that and had kept track because again, the, the, 
this is a show that is predicated on having a small enough crew that every death is very major, and so they should have a list somewhere of everybody who has died that they're pulling out now. And yeah, again, lack of kind of care. It doesn't really matter. Again, this is in a different era of television than we are now, and while somebody at Game of Thrones has a list of every single character, major and extra, who has ever died just in case they need that – that's how television is made nowadays. Uh, that is a – I think – I, I assume a higher budget production staff. That is a bigger thing. That is the way we do things now. I, It's a little unfair to fault Voyager for not doing that. But at the same time, it still exists as a problem that we're noticing. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean I will say, yes, Game of Thrones is a much higher budget production than Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. Because uh, they film in Iceland for multiple weeks at a time. Uh, and Star Trek Voyager is not doing that. I I think that, I mean, I struggle with this episode because I I think ultimately it's, it's a very, very good character study for Janeway, Seven of Nine, and Ichab. And really highlights, I think, the ways in which those characters are relying on each other to such a degree that... Voyager continues to try to sell this idea of Voyager as a family. And we have talked about this in the past as not necessarily complying or conforming to what is actually shown on screen Mm. most weeks. And you get that scene between um, Ichab and this is a really good week for people confronting Janeway angrily and Janeway backing down, which is unusual because Ichab also does that to Janeway towards the end of the episode when he is trying to convince her that his plan to give seven of nine, his cortical node will work and he will survive. And he convinces her by saying, you know, look, I I thought that we helped each other. I thought this was the kind of, you know, place and the kind of society that did this. You know, you answer a distress call and you don't know uh, who these people are, but you're just willing to put yourself in harm's way to help strangers. And that convinces her. And all of this is really done and really all of this is really well done and really powerful and highlights the ways in which I think Voyager has fallen down on giving its other cast members and other characters a chance to have the same sorts of deep and meaningful relationships that seven of nine has with Janeway that Janeway has with seven of nine that the doctor has with seven of nine, etc. Yeah. And it, it feels a bit incestuous because I like Echeb as a character. I think Echeb is a good character. I think he's interesting. And I think that they use him very well in this episode, but they almost seem like they're writing off a lot of the other characters that they haven't spent any time on, and instead they're really going to double down on Ichab, which just seems odd to me. Well, Ichab in some ways is able to be stuff that Harry Kim wasn't quite. Like, they tried for a few minutes to sell Harry Kim as the kid, and he's the fresh face, and it's his first day, and Janeway's feeling a little motherly towards him because he's the kid, and he plays the oboe, and his mother called her, and... You know, she feels that, and but that didn't quite work, and that, just simply due to age and experience, is where Echep is a little more. He is at somebody who is on the cusp of figuring out who he is. He's still a kid. He still isn't quite there, but, and again, this episode is a major moment. I mean, her, Janeway even says, like, no, he's, I don't think he's a kid anymore, is when she's recognizing that. No, he's making – this is the first adult decision he has ever made. This is – he has used – 
his full adult rationale on this. He has completely, you know, this is a right decision. This is not a youthful impulse. Um, And that's a much more interesting place because, you know, Harry Kim already made that development because he's older. He is a Starfleet officer, um, even if he is inexperienced. And so he doesn't have that 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 the story of that is not an interesting hum to get to. At least Echeb has that. That's a bit of character development you can do. You need to frankly yeah, have so. a character to have character development. Well, well, that's true. And I mean, I think that that if they are going to to use Echeb in this way and 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 you know consistently develop his character, I, I think that that's that's good. I mean, he's a fine character. I think that. I don't know. Seven of Nine, a lot of characters so often with Seven of Nine are are linked to her in some way to identify or to show the audience how far she has come in her evolution. And Echeb is yet another example of that where, you know, Seven of Nine does not want to feel indebted to or feel attached to or feel that she mm. needs anyone else or that anyone else needs her. And she's almost viewing this as a sort of like codependent pathology. But... It's not. I mean, Echeb, yeah. Echeb loves her and loves her as, I think, a sister or something like that, as a, as a family member, as a role model, as someone that he can look up to as a mentor. And Seven of Nine views that fundamentally as a weakness, I think. And well, this is, this is a rare example of yeah. Voyager being a little subtle here, I think, because the undercurrent of Seven of Nine's distaste for interpersonal relationships has always been that... Uh, uh, she she does not want to go back down a road of becoming as dependent on others as she, as she was when she was a Borg, and it's she's almost got some sort of of sort of you know uh, attachment disorder or something. It's kind of an overcorrection. In other words, she she still has trouble sometimes recognizing that um, people would risk their life for her, and she she. she, she but but it's she's still an individual. She has trouble kind of recognizing the difference sometimes between collective and individuality in a in a community. Um, she sometimes worries that being too dependent on another person is the same, and so yeah, she does overcorrect. And this is another that's kind of teaching her the gray area. Oh, that's that's okay, and that's safe, and that's beneficial to everybody. Um, yeah, and, because. I- and, and, I mean, frankly, the idea of one drone sacrificing its – you know, at the same time, I think she also does have some Borg philosophy in her still too because the idea of one Borg sacrificing itself to heal another is something that isn't done. It's not necessary to do. I mean she very specifically says if this problem happened, she would just be decommissioned. Uh, they wouldn't replace it. They wouldn't – decide, well, this drone is more important than the the other. We're going to take their cortical node out. Well, well, to be fair, she does say that they wouldn't try and fix it. They would just replace it. So I Uh, think, you know, the implication there, of course, is that if the the drone itself was damaged, they're just going to liquidate it. We have seen that before in the past with the Borg. But I mean, I think you're right. I think that, that the problem with Seven of Nine is that she doesn't identify or doesn't realize that there's a difference between helping someone out of obligation and helping someone because you want to. And that... That is the real journey in this episode where, I mean, interestingly enough, of course, Seven of Nine is still very much dependent on her Borg technology, and Echeb is is not. I mean, Echeb is younger. Echeb was not yeah. fully assimilated when he came out of his maturation chamber, and so... 
Um, I mean, just as Star Trek Voyager has more technical babble than any other Star Trek series, I think our podcasts do as well, um, <laughs> that, you know, he's able to detach a little bit more from the Borg. He has always been a little bit closer to his own individuality than Seven of Nine has been. I mean, he's called Icheb, you know, she's called Seven of Nine. That is not a subtle difference, but it is the case that uh, in this episode, of course, she is still tied to the Borg and she is always going to be tied to the Borg because as far as we know, I mean, at some point in the future, of course, maybe they'll be able to remove her cortical node and she will be able to sleep like a normal person because I think the implication is that each no longer needs to regenerate. He can now just like sleep in a bed. Um, but it's just, it's a rare example. I think of the character of seven of nine, not knowing what to do. Do because she is so helpless in this episode. I mean, she is she is dying and she yeah. doesn't know what to do about it and she can't do anything about it. And it is someone like Icheb that has the, a lot of the same experiences as her, but also realizes that he can help her. And, you know, it's well done. I think you know, this is the episode where Seven of Nine learns to rely on other people. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I I think that Ichib's decisions also kind of do tie into his backstory because, as you remember, he was somewhat somebody who was genetically modified to be assimilated to destroy the Borg. In other words, he was created to be a sacrifice to save people, and so in a way, he is primed. And here is a way he's able to make a sacrifice that is not a permanent one and frankly will benefit him. I think the show thinks it's a good thing to rely less on Borg technology. Um, And I do think there is the implication that his genetic modifications are also part of why he's so able to uh, go through this procedure and be fine. Yeah, that certainly could be. I mean, I do think that you're right that the show does think that it's a good thing that Ichab essentially is is giving away a little bit more of his Borgness. And he has always been less of a Borg. I mean, his optical thing is not as big as Seven of Nines. He doesn't have to wear that weird bodysuit, which was justified when Seven of Nine was introduced as being some sort of like Borg thing. And of course it isn't. It's just a cat suit because... <laughs> Jerry Ryan is a very comely woman, but like each doesn't have to wear that. He can just wear normal clothes. There's a lot of stuff going on here, which is an indication that, that each is, I don't know, as, as each physically becomes less like seven of nine, emotionally, they become closer. Well, there is, I, uh, there is a degree. I wonder of subtext of, in a way, Seven of Nine is an immigrant, and he's closer to somebody who has fully grown up in the new culture. True. He, yeah, that's a good point. His adaptations may be a little easier than hers are. Yeah, because I think he was supposed to be like 15 or something, and he was in a maturation chamber, so mentally, what is he? You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah, a lot as a of, Borg, a lot of grayness it's here. only been some months that he was fully a Borg. Now, what do you make we touched about we touched on this earlier a little bit, but but what do you make of the scene between Bolana and Seven? Because oh, I love these it. are two characters that don't get a lot of scenes together. And Bolana and Seven sort of have like I think a grudging respect for each other, which is which is kind of nice. Well the I, show never really telegraphs it in any way. 
Like, I don't think the two of them quite like each other. Like, they, they don't hang out. And no. frankly, we've seen so many times of Balana's annoyed because 7 of 9 just goes in and does something. And frankly, I think 7 of 9's disregard for a lot of protocol pisses Balana off because, frankly, Balana had to get her shit together and learn to deal with protocol a little better and she had to rein in some of her own impulses and there is a tiny amount of resentment to seven of nine that she's able to just flout all this and Janeway's just like oh well whatever that's seven of nine we don't have to bother teaching that to her um and yeah again the two of them don't like each other which is why I think it has to be Balana who says to her, no, you have made a huge impact. Everybody on this ship knows you and has made an impact on you, and you have not lived in vain. I mean, if the doctor says that, if Janeway says that, even if Harry Kim says that, uh, Seven of Nine can say, well, you're just saying that because you feel that way. But for Balana to say this is almost a Nixon goes to China moment. Like, if you're, if you're saying that, you're going to miss me. People who actually like me are really going to miss me. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that that I mean, I think it's interesting you say Balan and Seven don't like each other. I think that's true. But I think that they well, respect each other. Oh, and, and I agree with that. They both know the other I, I I they both know that the other is unparalleled in their field, that they are extremely loyal to the same people, that they are working for the same cause. They are allies and comrades, but they're not friends. Yeah, and I think that, that that scene is a really good example of a type of scene that I think Star Trek excels at, yeah. which is two characters that don't really have a lot in common, that don't really like each other, that would not choose to spend time with each other, but there is a fundamental decency and respect between them because of their shared circumstances, because of the belief system of the Federation. And and frankly, I think, too, because of just where Voyager is in its, in its journey. You know, this episode also does talk a little bit about that and how Janeway has had... I mean, that's the, the point of the scene where Seven of Nine essentially tries to, to shame Janeway, and it doesn't work, but it's it's all part of a piece, I think. I did wonder at one point if this was just a very elaborate si- simulation for Echeb's benefit as his Starfleet exam. Like, wasn't there a Wesley episode where that <laughs> happened? It, where the whole thing was to see if Echeb would sacrifice himself to save another crew member's life. And at the end, Seven of Nine wasn't really dying. I would have watched that episode. I mean, that would have been interesting. <laughs> I think this is probably a better episode. No, of course. I mean, Seven of Nine gets her moment to cry at the end, and she realizes she's crying because she loves Icheb, and Icheb loves her, and they, they have respect for each other. I mean, it's nice. It's just Yeah. Like, I don't know. But in general, it's not that Seven of Nine's character development is done, but there is a degree of hmm. passing that – slowly passing the torch to Icheb. Uh He's at a much more fundamental stage in, in his development, and so – you know, she's at a point where she's done the 80% and then the 20 is a lot more subtle and he's at the big exciting steps that are are, are just more fun to watch. So again, yeah. this this is pointing to stuff the series could have been doing the entire time. Well, if we wanted to do that, we could – I mean maybe when we uh, reach the end of Voyager, we'll do a patron special on what exactly is wrong with Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> but maybe not. All right. Well – Anything else? That's it. 
All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on Unimatrix Zero Part 2 or Imperfection, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. As I said earlier, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow is where you can go to financially support our podcast, Truck About. It is very much appreciated. And if you like our podcast and are sad that we are now releasing biweekly and want more podcasts than you have... We have you covered. $5 a month will get you access to almost three years of patron specials with more to come. That is 36 podcasts that you have never heard before. Patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truckaboutshow is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for Truckabout. All right, next week we're going to be talking about the Star Trek Voyager episodes Drive and Repression.